And this should not be revolutionary to us. We understand that the, the, the church sits in culture and, and it always has as a purifying agent. And so I go back to my time when I considered politics because the major flaw in my thinking was that we need a better president or we need a better government or we need better local politicians so that we could fight this. And again, I, that's partially true, but what about you sitting in the pew, brother and sister? Where do we fall in all of this? Actually, Christians of all people understand the heart of this conversation better than any because we have access to the heart of God. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. I remember this topic, or I know this topic, very deeply and personally, and I know you do as well. As we think about the sanctity of life today, I have always had a particular burden for this topic, and I don't say that. I'm, I, again, I know you do as well. I think all those who love God and understand even God to the slightest extent should. There was actually a time in my life, believe it or not, that I considered politics as a future um, I can get in a political wormhole if I allow myself to. I enjoy it. I enjoy it, and I really have to be careful. Um, my wife would say it's because I'm argumentative. She's, she's probably not wrong. But I, I, I seriously remember um, early, late in high school, early in college, um, times in my room and times in my dorm room, seriously considering abortion and how much I hated it, and how much it grieved me, and actually my, my desire for politics was specifically related to being involved in this particular topic and cause and opposing abortion, of course. And so I've always had a particular hatred for it, and I, I pray and hope that it's righteous. And I, I say that to you to point out to you a flaw in my thinking, and one that since the Lord has corrected, because that's what He does over time, He corrects the flaws in our thinking. I remember thinking at that time that what we needed was politics to make this better. Now, let me state, I'm so thankful for the Supreme Court's decision, and I think we should pray prayers of thanksgiving. And so I don't want to undervalue the importance of politics in this conversation. But I think what we've done, and when I say we, I mean church at large, I think that's our thinking because we're so politically oriented anyway that what we need is we need better policy and we need better politicians and then we need better government. And then once we get those people in the right place, then this issue will take care of itself. 
But what if God, in His infinite wisdom and kindness, wants the church to lead in this? And this should not be revolutionary to us. We understand that the, the, the church sits in culture, and, and it always has, as a purifying agent. And so I go back to my time when I consider politics because the major flaw in my thinking was that we need a better president or we need a better government or we need better local politicians so that we could fight this. And again, I, that's partially true, but what about you sitting in the pew, brother and sister? Where do we fall in all of this? Actually, Christians of all people understand the heart of this conversation better than any because we have access to the heart of God. This text that we're going to study together, we're, I, I, this is, I almost never do this, especially if you're with us on Wednesdays. You know, my, my opinion of when you preach a psalm is you need to preach the whole psalm. That's, that's the way that you do it. And so I'm going to go against my nature here. I'm going to read the whole of Psalm 139. We're just going to focus on verses 13 to 16 together. But I'm going to read the whole so that we get the whole context and we understand where verses 13 to 16 fall. And I think that you will find that not only is this topic dear to us and that we have wonderful access into the heart of God here, but you will find that Psalm 139, 13 to 16 is not only one of the most beautiful portions of the Bible in relation to this conversation, but just one of the most beautiful portions of the Bible. Having said that, let's read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, even darkness is not dark to you. For the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. 
How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I would count them. They are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord. And do not I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What a beautiful text of Scripture. I'm sure you noted why the primary content of our message this morning is verses 13 to 16. The content of the the context of the passage, the primary content of the passage deals with God's intimate knowledge of us and our comfort in intimately knowing Him. And so it makes perfect sense, of course, that the psalmist would go back to the very beginning of God's intimate thoughts towards us, our beginning, and even further back than that. It notes the creation of God, God's creating humanity, but even more specifically, God's creating us. And this idea of God's creation in this passage deals with two primary aspects that give us categories as we think about the topic of the sanctity of life. And two primary things that we consider that in and of themselves should be impetus alone for us to hate abortion. And it's the the idea of God's authority and God's affection. And so this morning, I want to show you from this text that abortion refuses God's authority over life and affection for life. Abortion refuses or diminishes or denies God's authority over life and affection for life. We're just going to work through these verses systematically. Each point is a principle that we can derive directly from the text as it pertains to this discussion and even beyond this discussion because this text points out God's view of our life, God's view of who we were even before our birth. And therefore, what we can how it can cause us to think about the unborn in general. This is not the only psalm that deals with the concept of the unborn. If you look at Psalm 84, God has a desire for truth to be perpetuated throughout historical accounts in His people, the declaration of generational truth. And He says in the early part of that psalm, the the reason He wants His The reason he wants parents and grandparents to know the Bible is to to teach a generation, a generation of those yet unborn. So we establish truth and we establish it from God's Word. 
because we know that God cares about life. And we get, the, we get this idea of his care implicit or even explicit from the text in relation to his creation. So I want to show you in verse 13 that God's creation of life assumes care. God's creation of life assumes care. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. We're just going to use the terminology of the text together because it points to us both God's, the aspect of God's creation and the aspect of God's care. You formed my inward part. This idea of forming in the Old Testament has two implications. It's used throughout the Old Testament. It almost always has the idea of origination or creation. You formed, that is, you established, you made, you created. He's going to use in the next line the word knitted. But I said it has two ideas. It has the idea of procuring, like in Deuteronomy verse 30, chapter 32, verse 6. Thus you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people. Is he not your father who created same word, and made and established you. So it has the idea of procuring, creation. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, this word actually has the idea of possession, keeping. Exodus 15 verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone, this is the enemies of God, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people passed by whom you have purchased. It's the same word as the word formed. It's the same word as the word created. So this one word synonymously in the Old Testament maintains the idea, the implications of both creation and possession. Creation and keeping, procuring and possessing. And this is, this is significant. You must understand these two implications in tandem as the same because it means that God's creation assumes possession. That which God creates he keeps. And it only makes logical sense. God would care less about that which He did not make. And we're the same way. When my children draw me something, is it good? No. Now, credit where credit's due. My children are actually decent colorers. My daughter is a better colorer than me. But are children good artists? No. They're just, they're not. I love them, but we still put it on the fridge, right? Right? Why? Because that creation causes care. When you have a piece of furniture in your home that you bought from Ikea, does it mean the same thing as a piece of furniture that you might procure with your own hands? No. Because creation causes care. God cares 
because he created. And he cares for those whom he has created. Those whom he creates, he keeps, namely, to use Paul's terminology, those who believe. And that eternal keeping is only available through the gospel. Those whom he makes his own children, he eternally keeps through Christ, possessed in his hands because he cares. Synonymous with his creation. To continue the intimacy of the language, you formed my inward parts. And this word in the Old Testament is also a fascinating word. It can refer to the immaterial part of a person. That is the soul, the deepest portion of the person. That is the heart and who they are in their soul. But it is also elsewhere in the Old Testament and in ancient Hebrew a physical word. It can refer to the immaterial part, the deepest portion of who I am. And it can refer to a physical portion. In fact, in ancient Hebrew, this word often meant the word kidney. You formed my innards. You made everything about me, even the deepest parts physically that no one sees. But, but it has the same, it's me, it, the word is used about the deepest part of who we are, immaterial, our soul, the deepest cares of our soul, the deepest needs of our heart. God cares about all of us. The psalmist is likely using this word pointing to God's caring for the whole of a person. In other words, it's not just how He's made you that He cares for, but who He's made you that He cares for. You love your children and you love them uniquely. Why do you love them uniquely? Because they're not the same. God loves His children uniquely. Isn't that unbelievable? There are things that that God has put in me and wired me a certain way, and He loves me uniquely. And there are things in you, and that He's wired you a certain way, and He loves you uniquely. And He made you that way. You formed my inside. Some of you knit. Some of your your grandmothers knit. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Listen to the, the intimacy and the imagery woven together with care and gentleness and intentionality. God makes with care because He cares for what He makes. You don't end up with with a finished result that's beautiful and fascinating. You You don't end up with an incredible patchwork quilt without care. You don't end up with something knitted just as you want it without intentionality. And when you're done, you look at it and you say, it's good. And God made man and woman and His image And he looked on them and said, it's good. 
And then he looked at the man alone. Because the man was looking at creation. And he said, that beast gets a mate, and that beast gets a mate. And God said, I will make a helper for him. And it's good. God makes with care because he cares for who he makes. Sanctity of life is fundamentally a matter of care. If we cared as much as God does, we'd protect life the way God does. It's astounding to think paternally, and I want to be, I want to be so sensitive to this. Many of you have grieved and labored over the loss of a children, over God's possibly a, a delay in God giving you children, and and this is a deep and 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 painful even subject for you. And and by the way, I this is why I commend to you the beauty of adoption. God calls one to some to one ministry. And, bearing children, raising children, and some to, to another ministry and means. And so I want to be careful in this, but, but you know that moment when you, when you celebrate the heartbeat, it's just a sound, but it's so dear to you. And you celebrate that blur on the screen, and you can't even make it out, but it's so dear to you. And you celebrate the gender and, and it's so dear to you. And God is celebrating with you. He is rejoicing over that child with perfect joy because He has formed that child who they will be physically, and who they are on the inside. God is a beautiful God. Creation of life assumes care. And secondly, very similar to this idea is God's creation of life is done with care. The psalmist, he takes this knitting terminology, this first implication of God is intimately caring for what he makes and he presses it even further and it causes his worship. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is not a statement of his own beauty. He's not saying, look at me, look how amazing I look. He's, he's talking about the glorious creation of God. He made him Fearfully, this is the word honorably, or literally even, he's made him with awe. Psalm 106, verse 22, it's the same word. Wondrous works and awesome deeds. First Chronicles 17, 21. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name, great and awesome things. It's the same word, wondrous or wonderful things. 
And so we don't allow it to feed our egos and feed our vanity. This isn't about us. But what the psalmist is literally saying is, you have made me with awe. You have made me with honor. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 8, who's astounded at the beauty of creation. He says, he says look at the stars and the galaxies. And, and then he, in his meditation of God's creation, he says, and when I consider man, you've made him a little lower than the angels. How could you think of us? Because God's creation is done with care. It's honorable and awesome. God's creation of life is done with care. And it causes praise. God's creation of life causes exultation. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. It's a repetition of the first line. Wonderful are your works. It's caused him to praise. He's praising in the first line. And what is the impetus of his praise? I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. What specifically is the work? In the the second part of verse 14, the work of creation. Wonderful are your works of creation. My soul knows it very well. If we terminate life, we limit our worship. I, I, have, I have not been tempted to believe evolution until a time of questioning that was late in my high school and early in my college years. I, I went through a searching period. And, and let me just say, especially if you're a young person and, and you're in a searching period, it's okay. That's not bad. Just make sure you ask the right people the right questions. So I've not been tempted to believe evolution for a long time. I was never really tempted to because if you study the, even the basic logic of it, it's, it's fairly self-defeating. But I remember when my first child was born, meditating after Everly's birth, and you know, it was the first night, and the first night's always terrible, and so you're up anyway, and, and I'm just thinking, if you're pregnant, I'm sorry, but that's how it is. Um, it gets better. Uh, to share an experience from my parents, when my, my older brother was born, you know, my, I have an older brother, and my mom, you know, went through the, the difficult labor, and it was a long labor, and, and Drew was born, and the doctor immediately told her, well, Paula, the easy part's over. <laughs> it really is glorious. But I remember meditating on everything I had just seen, and we were blessed to have um, I say we. Um, we were blessed to have a fairly uneventful. <laughs> it's always so easy for the guy to talk about, right? I'll just say the Lord was gracious and everything worked the way it was supposed to work. And, and, I, and I remember thinking later, how in the world can anyone believe that we're just a clump of cells that operate independently from primordial soup 
the process of pregnancy and childbirth is the most glorious picture of God's sovereign, specific care. And what takes place in childbirth when it does the way that everything's supposed to work, the infinite wisdom of God is on full display. I don't know how you can believe after witnessing that that it's accidental and fortunate. God creates with care. And God's creation causes exaltation. Even in those moments of trying to get the first one who's crying and and you think something's wrong, so even in, you're crying, and so even in those moments, the, the process causes you to reflect and rejoice, and then, and then the, the growth and, and the constant joy that, because, joy that you see because we've been made well, wonderful are His works in creation. And so we must stand for life fundamentally because believers stand for worship. We must protect the unborn so that we have unlimited praise in God's creation. Verse 15 and 16, the psalmist just continues to press the beautiful imagery of God's creation and the intimacy of God's making him. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. And verses 15 and 16, we see that God's care of life preceded creation. So God's creation assumes care, but in 15 and 16, God's care actually predated the creation of, of, the, of the child. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Again, just listen to the care that the psalmist pictures with the God's creation of a life in the womb, intricately woven and knitted together. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Literally, this translation has the idea of embryonic. It's, It's what's taking place inside the body as God is creating it. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, God wrote every day of your life and he did it when you were still forming in the womb. I love Calvin's quote on verse 15. Almost as like a, you could picture, you can picture the first part of verse 15 being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth and Calvin uses this terminology, should an artisan, should an artist intend commencing work in some dark cave where there was no light to assist him? How would he even set his hand to it? In what way would he proceed? And what kind of workmanship would it prove? In other words, if you put any other artist in a dark cave, you get a bad product. 
But listen, but God makes the most perfect work of all in the dark. For He fashions man in the mother's womb. The most perfect work of all in the dark. God's care alone causes the people of God to rise up and stand for that which God loves so deeply. With the idea of God's creation, as we've already said, since God cares in God's creation, God alone has right and opportunity and ability to define life and its duration. God who made with such care and such devotion and in such attention alone has the opportunity to both give it and decide when it should be taken. In speaking of this whole text, this whole beautiful passage, Spurgeon says an architect draws up his plans and makes out his specifications. Even so did the great maker of our frame write down all our members in the book of his purposes that we have eyes and ears and hands and feet all due to the wise and gracious purpose of heaven. It was so ordered in secret by decree by which all things are as they are. God saw us when we could not be seen. And He wrote about us when there was nothing to write about. When as yet there was none of our members in existence, all those members were before the eye of God in His sketchbook, His foreknowledge and loving predestination. How then do the people of God respond to His great affection and His great authority? We have gracious and patient, but zero tolerance for the my body, my choice mentality. Because it never was. And it never will be. You understand that if we were a clump of cells evolved from primordial soup, it would be your right. You understand that? Now, obviously, from that, there are a myriad of philosophical and biological questions that we have to face, but let's just say from the very outset that if you were an accidental biological animal, you'd have that right to make your own decision. But you know what you'd also have to do? Create your own purpose. And create your own meaning. And create your own morality. Create your own worth. Create your own joy. And do you know what we see the world doing? Trying 
all of those things. And where do you end up? The very destruction of life itself. If truly naturalism and evolution are true, the, the idea of bodily autonomy can be affirmed. But then I get to treat you the way I want to treat you, and you can treat me the way, whatever way you want to treat me. And we all get to make our own decisions and create our own system, and life is absolute chaos. It looks like what it looks like right now apart from Jesus Christ. But our bodies are not our own. We were bought with a price. The heart of abortion says, I'll take your life so I can have mine. But the heart of the gospel says, I'll give my life so that you can have yours. And the God who cares about that creation has eternally cared about that creation, eternally securing it in the person and work of His Son. And through that Son, we are brought into eternal family. So of all people who stand for life, we should stand for life for the right reasons. And they're not primarily born from politics. They're primarily born from your view of God Himself. How much you love and appreciate the gospel and how it's affected you. Our desire to worship Him because we're fearfully and wonderfully made and, and we don't have to create our own purpose because God has given it to us. You're created for my glory. And when we live for His glory, we fulfill our ultimate meaning. And at His hand are pleasures forevermore. So we live for our joy. God's system for life alone accounts for all of human longing. So what do we do? What do we do? I have four simple ideas. They're very simple. And listen, I have said multiple times this is not primarily a political issue, but vote appropriately. This should be a consideration when you vote. Secondly, and more importantly, give the gospel. Give the gospel to sinners. You see, I don't even know where people might be struggling with this. Talk to Retta. Find a secular work environment. Go to a coffee shop. Talk to your waitress. You might go out to eat today and have a waitress who's wondering about next decisions with her life and regarding a pregnancy. You have no idea. 
be Jesus to the world. Don't get on Facebook and turn on the news and gripe and berate all the problems with the world. Give the world the gospel. What else do we do? True religion is to care for the widows and the fatherless. Care for those who lack the opportunity and ability to care for themselves the way that they should. We are so quick to ascribe value to someone's life on the basis of religion. Oh, that person's a missionary. Praise God for them. They're going to whatever country, and they're going to plant churches. I agree. Praise God. Oh, that person's a pastor. He must know God better and be... No. Oh, that person's a businessman, and he's been blessed by God because he's doing really well, and now he's able to give. And We ascribe value on the basis of religion. What is the gospel and religion in its most basic sense, James says? Care for the widows and the fatherless. And this principle, by the way, moves far beyond the scope of the sanctity of life. Men, we, got, we have young boys in our church who don't have a dad at home. Care for the widows and fatherless. Ladies, we have ladies in our church, younger than you, maybe older than you, who've never had a meaningful relationship with their mom. They were never discipled by their mom. Care. And thirdly, and I've already mentioned this, we should be involved in the community. We should be involved in the community. I, I don't think it's the end all. I think evangelism and gospel expansion is primary. But we should be involved in the community. Find organizations you can support. Find people who need help and guidance and care. And go through the right channels. But God created, therefore that means He alone has right to define. And God cares. And you have seen from the text how intimately He cares. And so let's make sure that our care for this issue aligns with God's heart, not our governmental concerns. And let's fight and stand because we care the way that God does because we of all people have been expressed that care in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're surrounded by people who need to be introduced to Him. I mean, who knows, my friend? God could place you in the life of a young lady 
And you are an instrument of God's Spirit to help her make right choices. And that young lady is integrated into a church and she feels alone, but people walk her through step by step. And that young baby is surrounded by men who love God and want to show them the the paternal heart of God. And that young lady is found and spiritually mothered by somebody in our church. And generations yet unborn are changed forever. This is the power of the gospel. God alone, because of His great affection, has true authority. And we, His people, must learn His care so that we can properly apply it. Let's pray.